Hey, Rarecast listeners, Global Genes Next 2021, A Time for Resilience and Ingenuity, is now available to download. This is our annual report on the major developments in rare disease and looks ahead to trends that are reshaping the landscape. To get your free electronic copy, go to globalgenes.org and look for a link to the report on the homepage. You can also go to bit.ly forward slash 2021 next report. That's bit.ly forward slash 2021 next report. The electronic version is free. On-demand print copies can also be ordered for a fee. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. to target the underlying cause of a disease and make a lasting correction makes gene therapy an attractive approach to treating neurodegenerative conditions. The advent of Zolgensma, a gene therapy for the treatment of the rare neurodegenerative condition spinal muscular atrophy, serves as a model for this approach. A recent review article in Nature Neuroscience looks at the advances in the development of gene therapies for neurodegenerative diseases, and considers the challenges and promises. We spoke to article co-author Subhojit Roy, professor in the Departments of Pathology and Neuroscience at the University of California, San Diego, about the pace of activity in this area, why he believes it's so promising, and its potential to extend beyond monogenic diseases. This episode is part of our ongoing Platforms of Hope series that explores advances in gene therapy and gene editing. Sabojit, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me here. We're going to talk about gene-based therapies for neurodegenerative diseases and the recent review article you co-authored in Nature Neuroscience that looked at the promise and challenges of such interventions. I I should note you use the term gene therapy broadly to include all forms of genome manipulation. One of the first gene therapies to come to market is Zolgensma, a gene therapy for rare neurodegenerative disease, spinal muscular atrophy. Is it surprising to you to see one of the first gene therapies to emerge was a treatment for a neurodegenerative condition? I I think it was a surprise because for me, you know, the field has been doing gene therapies for a long time. So the field of neurodegeneration and Alzheimer's, the gene therapy has been tried for a while and um, really there have been no successes so far. And, you know, I don't know what the reason is and it's different for every disease, but for Alzheimer's, for example, we have been doing uh, gene therapy trials actually at UCSD um, for um, injecting these kinds of growth factors into Alzheimer's brain, and that hasn't worked for various reasons. Then in Parkinson's disease, we've had many gene therapy trials, and all of those have uh, failed, really. So yes, it was a surprise that this sort of came out of nowhere, that this gene therapy in um, in these children with spinal muscular atrophy was uh, you know, so incredibly successful. 
what makes neurodegenerative diseases inviting targets for gene therapies? Right, that's a great question. One of the biggest selling points of gene therapy is essentially that it can target the etiology of the disease, which means that it can actually target the cause of the disease. You know, which if you think about it, it's not that common. Most of the times we are targeting symptoms of the disease, not the actual cause. But if you go after the gene, then the advantage that you have is that you can actually focus on the targets that are uh, responsible for the disease to develop in the first place. And I think that's the one of the biggest advantages of gene therapy that you can actually go and and you know focus on the actual target rather than targeting peripheral things. The other huge advantage of gene therapy is the permanency and the long-term correction. And these, you know, these are not new things. These were said, I don't know, in the uh, in review review articles in the 60s, people have said that these are the two biggest draws of gene therapies. So for neurodegenerative diseases, it's definitely a huge plus to, you know, have um, a gene-based therapy. As you note in your article, many challenges still remain. I'd like to walk through a few of those, starting with delivery. How much of a challenge is getting a gene therapy across the blood-brain barrier and targeting desired tissues and cells? Right. So if you talk to people about gene therapies, that's the commonest thing you will hear that, you know, it's all about delivery. You know, delivery is difficult. Delivery doesn't happen. You know, I, I beg to differ. I think that I'm way more optimistic when I when I actually look at the data out there and I look at what has been done rather than just listening to people. I feel that there is really good evidence in various model systems, including you know non-human primates, that we have the ability to deliver genes diffusely into the central nervous system using the current technology that we have. Now I get a lot of pushback when I say this thing, but actually I can you know I can show you data that has shown that kind of stuff. So the thing is that it's a bit nuanced, and the field has really moved a little bit too fast in the last few, I would say, even a couple of years. Because for a very long time, the whole thing was that it was very difficult to cross the blood-brain barrier using even the you know the viruses or the clear you know front runner in this. It's very difficult to cross the blood-brain barrier, but Recently, people have figured out, you know, ways to overcome that. For example, the traditional way the viruses were put into into the central nervous system was to, um, you know, to get it diffusely into the brain, was to actually put it into the CSF. And because if you put it in the CSF, which is the cerebrospinal fluid that bathes the brain, so if you put it in the in the cerebrospinal fluids, the viruses, along with their payloads, which is the gene therapy, eventually gets into the brain, and that's been known for a long time. But people, the way they try to do this is by injecting these viruses into the CSF in the usual way, which is by a, a lumbar puncture, or, or essentially, if you think about it, it's a lower part of your back. That's that's it's it's just a routine neurologic technique to do that. And more recently, people have found uh, so that that by that technique, very little of the virus got into the brain. So this has been all over the place that you know the viruses cannot get into the brain. But in the last few years, people have actually used the same procedure, but they are injecting the virus much higher up, so it's near the neck, and it's still within the same um, space, which is the which has the cerebrospinal fluid, 
but it is much physically closer to the brain but because it's it's close to your neck and it's it's called the intrasternal injections and with these intrasternal injections you know people have already shown that in um, in large non-human primates I mean, forget about mice mice we can easily um, inject things in their bloodstream and get the viruses all over into the brain but in non-human primates you can you can get these diffuse delivery of genes into the brain and actually uh, right now in neuroregenerative diseases there are two clinical trials um, that are doing just that you know one in alzheimer's where they are injecting uh, a gene called apoe2 which just is known to be beneficial for alzheimer's disease and they are injecting it into the cerebrospinal fluid using the aab viruses that we have in hand right now uh, and it's been do, it's been um, it's going to be done in the intracisternal, like I said, in the top, in the near the neck. And they have already shown in non-human primates that if you do the same procedure, you get a diffuse distribution of this gene into the entire brain. So can it can it be better? And of course, it can be better. And you know, it's it's still the technology in larger animals is nowhere near to what we can do in small animals. So there's a lot of room for improvement there. But I'm less, you know, less pessimistic than a lot of the people out there because to me, maybe because I entered the field late, but to me, it's, it seems like, um, you know, we can do it with the tools we have in hand right now. Another concern is potential off-target effects of these therapies. How big a challenge is that? And what's known about our ability to mitigate such problems? So by off-target, do you mean off-target of the viral injection or off-target of the specific therapy that you have like CRISPR or something? Uh, actually both. Yeah. So with the viruses, the big advantage we have is that the blood-brain barrier, while it makes it difficult for things to get into the brain, it also makes it difficult or almost impossible for things to get out, outside the brain. Okay. So the advantage with the viral injections is that you really if you do put it in the cerebrospinal fluid, like I was saying, like these um, clinical trials are doing, then you really don't get much of the viruses going outside the body. So you don't really have to worry about it so much. The second point with the uh, with the off-target effects of CRISPRs and all these things, you know, that's something that the whole field has to, you know, deal with. And really a lot of... Um, uh, things have been written and said about off-target effects, but the truth is that off, the off-target effect and the exact what happens to um, when you deliver this gene therapy is going to be very specific for each gene therapy. So every CRISPR therapy that you have will have its own set of off-target effects. So you can't really say that, oh, there was this paper published where they showed that uh, you have these random deletions and insertions because they use this CRISPR effect. That That has nothing to do with the specific effect that I'm doing. Uh, so that's kind of you know the two answers here. There's also the concern about triggering a, an immune response, particularly with the use of a viral vector. What do we know about that? Right. So that's actually, as you know, is a is a huge concern, and the whole field kind of um, you know suffered a lot because of um, some of the his historical things that happened in the field and that was because of the immune response. So since then, a tremendous amount of work actually has been done to mitigate the human response and 
for AAVs in particular, you know, we have thousands of patients that have been treated um, with, um, you know, with uh, without, you know, much symptoms. And every time you give them, you have to give them other other uh, medications, by the way, to suppress the immune response. There is going to be immune response for sure. And, uh, you know, recently also there's been some uh, mishaps with immune responses. So clearly the field has to you know, develop better sets of viruses. And there's lots of people working on it who know much more about this than I do. But that's that's definitely, uh, okay, so the, the bottom line is, should we worry about it? 100% and we should work work towards, you know, fixing the problem, which we are. But is it a game stopper? The answer is no, because we have, you know, we have many, many patients that have already been treated with viruses. These viruses in hand that are here right now. And, and, you know, they're fine. There's a growing set of tools to manipulate the genome. I, I wanted to walk through the main categories that you wrote about and have you explain what they are and offer any insight into their relative strengths and weaknesses of the approaches. Let's start with gene expression, the delivery of a gene to restore loss function. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the simplest. So, for example, in the... Uh, in the trial that you mentioned, the SMA trial with Zolgensma, that's exactly what they did. So it's very easy, for example, to um, just restore the function of a gene that has been lost by just introducing that gene. So technically, it's very simple because all you need is a strand of DNA. Um, and then it, in terms of biology, it makes perfect sense, right? If you have a loss of something, then you just put more of it. It's the, that's the simplest form of gene therapies. And I do feel that those are the kinds of gene therapies that are going to be most successful. And in fact, um, the uh, so I keep coming back to these two clinical trials that, uh, that are ongoing in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So Alzheimer's with the APOE that I said. And in Parkinson's, there is another one with a gene called GBA. Uh, and in both these cases, they are doing exactly that. They are basically just introducing a gene that produces a certain protein that they think will improve the pathology in these cases as a simplest use. How about DNA editing and and within the realm of neurology, is there a particular approach that's most advantageous for those conditions? I'm a big fan of DNA editing because to me, uh, there's are there risks for sure there are risks and then the main so the main thing about the dna editing that you um you know you need to know we need to know is that there is no going back okay once i edit your dna you know it's not we can't go back and fix it so that's the biggest risk doing a clinical trial with dna editors but like everything else in life, that's also the biggest advantage. Okay, uh, so you're really what you're really talking about is a single shot therapy. So what's called one and done. You know, for for the rest of your life, you're going to be fixed. Now these there there are other therapies like RNA-based therapies that are also you know pretty popular. But the problem with RNA-based therapies is that if you really think about how it's going to work, you know, it doesn't to me. Um, you know, it doesn't seem practical to, uh, this is a therapy that's 
going to work for two to three months and every two to three months you have to repeat the procedure now if you are really saying that you know you have to do intrathecal which is into the csf injections in a 65 year old man and he's going to come to the clinic every three months for that procedure i mean it's a procedure that's routinely done but it's not like a pinprick right i mean you have to there, there's things that need to be done so i'm not you know, I, I see the advantage of RNA therapies that uh, it's transient. So if something goes wrong, you can stop it. Um, but to me, you know, DNA uh, therapies are a big advantage. And I, too, I also see that as not very different from a surgical procedure, which also you have, you can go back. You know, if you, if, if, if you uh, take off your colon, I mean, you can't put it back on. So it's, it's pretty much the same thing. And in every case, we have to just weigh the risks and benefits and ask ourselves that uh, is editing the DNA in this person and, and giving him the potential to to live the rest of his life, you know, with a cure, is, is that worth the risk of having some abnormality that we can never, ever fix? I think anyone reading your article might be surprised to see the size of the list of gene therapies in studies right now for just a handful of conditions like Huntington's disease, ALS, and SMA. Is there anything that surprises you in what you're seeing? Anything that suggests one approach may be more promising than another? Yeah, I was pretty surprised too. I mean, I'm very interested in this field, obviously. But you know, when we started putting the all the trials together, it was just um, you know surprising to me that there's so many uh, trials that are ongoing right now for all these. Are there any that's better than me? Uh, so I'm a little biased towards uh, DNA editing, as I said, uh, for for neurodegenerative diseases. When I think about the practical aspects of having to you know treat older patients. So I, I feel like that's the way to go. I see the advantage of RNA therapies in the, so one big advantage of the RNA therapies, which is the, the most popular is the anti-sense oligo ASO therapies, is that they actually diffusely go to the brain. So delivery is not an issue as long as you can put it uh, into the CSF. So that's a big advantage there, which the DNA field has to match up. So. Uh, do I see one uh, better than the other? Um, I think that if you talk to people working in the field, they would, they would, the people are excited about ASOs and uh, RNA therapies, and I can see why they're excited. But to me, I think the future is in uh, you know in DNA editing because of the permanency and uh, just the logistics of how the DNA therapies would work. Our audience, which is focused on rare disease, I, I imagine thinks of these as tools for monogenic diseases. As you've mentioned, you're involved in work using CRISPR-Cas9 to develop potential treatments for Alzheimer's disease. What do you think the potential is for gene therapies to address neurodegenerative diseases that are more complex than, than a monogenic condition? Yeah, I think the first thing to remember is that no matter how complex a disease is, the therapies that we have, regardless of whether it's gene therapy or um, antibodies or whatever else you're giving, you know, you always focus on a single target anyways. It's either going to be amyloid or it's going to be tau, for example, for Alzheimer's, 
for Parkinson's is going to be, you know, one of the uh, genes in the pathways for dopamine metabolism, for example. So it's 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 not not that gene therapy is very different, but I think the mindset that people have is because the gene therapies have always been kind of thought of as relevant for monogenic disorders, which obviously it is. I mean, by the way, I think that the the, the monogenic uh, diseases are essentially going to be almost com completely curable. Once we have all these things figured out, delivery uh, and safety, if you think about it, that monogenic diseases have to be, you know, completely curable with this with this technology. Now, with with uh, with more complex diseases, it, it really comes down to what you think and, and what you think is the target. What you think is the most important target for the disease, and whether you're you're talking about an immunotherapy or gene therapy, it's the same question. What is the most important target that you're going to focus on? What's the you're taking in Alzheimer's? My so, in terms of what's the appropriate target? Yes. Yeah, to me, you know, the, you can't get away from the amyloid pathway, and I want to make it very clear. So, by amyloid pathway, I do not mean the amyloid beta aggregates. I'm agnostic about whether the aggregates themselves are the cause of the disease or not, but I'm talking about the process by which these amyloid beta aggregates are formed, which is the metabolism of this of this uh, protein called amyloid precursor protein and all these different things, uh, the, uh, the cleavage that happens to that protein to create the amyloid beta. I think that you just cannot get away from APP processing as a key event in Alzheimer's disease for a variety of reasons, but one, I'll give you a couple of them. So obviously, as you probably know, that like every um, familial form of Alzheimer's disease has a defect in this amyloid pathway. So if you if you put that aside, that's okay. It's the familial forms only very, you know, five ten percent of the cases. What about the other ninety percent of the cases? In the sporadic disease, if you really look and think about it, you um, so th there was this um, population in Iceland where people didn't get um, Alzheimer's disease. And they randomly screened the population. They screened the whole genomes. And the gene that came out that is a protective mutation for Alzheimer's disease is in this uh, APP, which is the first, you know, first molecule that's cleaved to make the A-beta. And that's a mutation that we and others have shown how exactly it is protective. So we know that too. And then in Down syndrome, for example, you have triplication of the, and this is a very interesting story that, so in Down syndrome, you have triplication of this chromosome 21, right? And um, I don't, you may know that pretty much all Down syndrome patients get Alzheimer's disease uh, as they live long enough. So this region is, which is triplicated, this chromosome 21, actually has the APP gene in it. And it has always, like, you know, me and others who think about APP all the time, you know, we just assumed that it was the triplication of the APP. And, but there's been a lot of pushback in the field that, oh, could it be different? You know, there's a lot of things being triplicated. What happened was there was, there were three or four patients with Down syndrome that did not get Alzheimer's disease. And when uh, people sequenced those, um, those patients, they found that the region containing the APP gene was not triplicated in those patients. And it just happens that there's slight variations in the regions that are triplicated. 
uh, in the Down syndrome patients. And, you know, what is the chance that all of this is a coincidence? So to me, I got a long story short, you got into this amyloid um, rant that I have, I'm sorry, but, you know, to cut a long story short, uh, to me, the APP processing and the process of forming the amyloid beta is the most important thing in Alzheimer's disease. It is immunotherapy and people, you know, people are focusing on immunotherapy and, um, you know, microglial uh, therapies and all these things, which is, uh, I think that's that's very good and important too. Maybe that will be good for Alzheimer's disease, but clearly the, I I can't see that as the etiology of the disease, and which is my main interest. You know, I want to I want to focus on the uh, on the target, which is the which is the trigger of the disease. And to me, it's the APP gene. You know, remember I didn't say amyloid beta. It's the APP gene is the is the target. What's the path forward for that work? So we are developing this um, gene therapy for the amyloid precursor protein. So the one thing that um, we have to realize that APP, uh, it's 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 a highly conserved protein. So it's it's there in I don't know pretty much every animal has it. So we can't just get rid of APP. You know it's a very risky technique. There is actually an ongoing clinical trial that is just removing APP using ASOs. Um, but what uh, the approach that we are taking is that we, my lab and other labs have, over the years, we have discovered that the very end of the APP molecule has these five amino acids, which um, sort of triggers the entire cascade, amyloid cascade. And uh, we've been working on the biology for a while, and by just by sheer luck, we discovered that actually if you use CRISPR-Cas9, to just cut out the small portion of APP, then you can actually ameliorate the pathology um, of the of the disease too. So that's the and the advantage of this is that you actually keep about you know ninety percent of the molecule intact. So APP is the uh, the business end of APP, so so to speak, is actually intact in our setting, and we are only you know deleting the the last few uh, amino acids. So you can think of it as like if you have a gangrene in your toe you know you're not killing the whole man you're just you know cutting that toe off so so that's the kind of the concept suppose you professor in the departments of pathology and neuroscience at the university of california san diego and co-author of the recent review article of gene-based therapies for neurodegenerative disease in nature neuroscience suppose thanks so much for your time today thank you for having me it was a pleasure Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.